When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm David Hendon and this is the Snooker Scene Podcast. Michael McMullen joins me. This, I warn you, this will be a bit shorter, I think, than the ones we've been used to lately, mainly because I'm completely knackered after the uh, Championship League, which uh, was a fantastic success. It finished last night as we record this. Luca Brussel and Ben Wollaston went to the last frame. And uh, not only uh, was it you know, a terrific way to end going to the last frame, but a unbelievable standard. It was a bit like the Gibraltar Open final between Trump and Wilson. Just the standard in the final is what you want from a final it was only you know obviously four frames of snooker it was it, i just thought it was a terrific match yeah it was and i mean a great way for it to finish as well with luca brussel winning the title because i think to a lot of the top players it mightn't have meant that much to them to have won it but here's a guy who showed flashes of how good he could be early on in his career having turned professional at a very early age he won a tournament and for a while did find some consistency. Then, of course, had that mishap with his cue just a few months after winning his tournament. And then it was back to just showing flashes over the next while. But now to see him holding up a trophy again in a televised event, yes, it was short matches. Yes, it was a different format. It would be great to think that could be a bit of a turning point for him because it would be fantastic, as we've said before, to have a Belgian player really established as a top player. He was for a little while. Then it all went wrong for him. So great to see him back there. And if I could have picked who I would have thought would be good for the game, uh, to have winning it, I think Luca Brussel would have been very near the top of the list. And of course, the Championship League in its more traditional format provided him with another one of the great moments of his career because that was where he had his 147 a couple of seasons ago. So he, more than anyone now, has a good reason to feel positive about the Championship League. And I thought it was a very good story to finish with. And we, we said when we were previewing it that because of the format, it would be a really good chance for players to make a name for themselves. Well, we saw that. Um, the likes of uh, Harvey Chanda, for example, was one, and uh, one or two others who got further on in the tournament than we might have expected. Guys who kind of it came down to at the end were players we knew about, but like I say, great for Brussel to win. It gets him into the champion of champions once again, of course, which could uh, also help him turn things around in his career. And Wollaston, I mean, he's been close to winning the title before, but not that often. And you could argue he got closer this time than he did at the Welsh Open a few years back. So it was an opportunity. And really, that was what this tournament was all about, was giving people a chance to play, a chance to win some good prize money, a chance to get some matches under their belt. And a lot of players took advantage of it very well. Well, we'll get on to the Championship League. I'm not sure I even introduced you. It's obviously Michael McMullen, who's, who's on every week, but I don't think I introduced you there. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get on to the Championship League in a minute, but but first we must address last week's fiasco of a podcast. Um, yeah. Which Now, I was I was in Milton Keynes, and the Hotel Wi-Fi, everything was great about the event, apart from the the strength of the Wi-Fi, 
And, you know, it was it was a horrible uh, listen. If you got through to the end, congratulations. Um, it was so bad, they're actually currently pulling down a statue of me. That's how bad it was. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was no good. But, uh, you know, these things happen. Hopefully uh, this is a better quality now I'm at home. Um, and but there were some there was there, there were some uh, interesting emails. Hopefully the people who had their emails read out uh, were, were happy enough. I did get a couple back, actually, from people. So that's good. Uh, but let's uh, let's go back to the Championship League. I, I like Luca a lot, actually. He's a, he's a nice lad, um, um, you know. He's very very humble, and you know, there's just and watching him play as well. He's got that sort of natural game. You you always kind of want him to do well. Obviously, he's fallen back a bit in the rankings. He had all the points coming off from his win, and, and actually, I think it was Peter Lyons who, who was commentating uh, last night was saying, yeah, you know, he, he actually maybe, and this does happen when players suddenly win a tournament, they just struggle suddenly with the changed circumstances. They're not chasing anymore. They're a winner. They're being chased, and it can be difficult to adjust. And he obviously did find it difficult, um, but he proved what a great talent he was, and. There was a terrific audience on ITV, over 600,000 on ITV4, you know, sort of half 11 at night is is a huge figure um, to be watching, particularly two players, obviously, you know, ranked 37, 38 in the world. Um, so what a great finish. And it's a finish I think the tournament deserved because, um, I mean, obviously I was there, so I, I kind of don't have a, a sort of... Um, an objective view of it. I was part of it in a way. Um, but I just thought the event was fantastic. I thought, you know, obviously this was put on, it wasn't supposed to be on initially, but it was put on in a way to prove that snooker could come back safely. And, but not only that, not only did it operate safely as a tournament, it was a really good tournament. And so much of it as well, 11 mm. days and seven, eight, maybe nine hours a day going on. And of course you had two tables going on at once. So to have all that choice and all that snooker to watch, uh, a bit out of the blue, really, was quite something. And the thing with Purcell, of course, as you say, I mean, he is a nice lad and everything. And he's admitted himself that something we never thought would happen with him because he seemed so in love with the game when he started. He did lose his focus a bit and wasn't as dedicated. But he has now spoken about how he has rededicated himself to the game. And it feels like he's been around forever because I think the first time we saw him play was in one of those World Series events, which is over 10 years ago now. He's still only 25 years of age. Age. Now, in snooker terms nowadays, mm. that's nothing. So he's got plenty of time to make an impact. And it would be great to see him back up there again. Uh, and hopefully this, this can uh, help him towards that. Yeah. And also, as you said, I mean, Ben Williston, um, again, a sort of player who you sort of feel, I mean, he's done well, don't get me wrong, but you feel he should kind of be doing better. It's funny that he's only made two centuries, you know, before coming into the event all season. Then suddenly he makes three and three frames in one match and then a couple in the final. Um it was weird set up for him, obviously, with his wife, with his wife refereeing. Yeah. They, weren't, they weren't allowed to share a room, even. That's how sort of strict it was. But um, nice to see guys like that uh, doing well. And also, and I kind of made this point in commentary in one of the matches. Normally, when you look at a player like Sam Craigie, sort of 62 in the world, normally when he plays on television, it's because he's playing a top player. He's brought on in the way to their environment. He's allowed onto Ronnie's table or Judd Trump's table. But in this event, he had the chance to play players around him in the rankings, maybe even lower in the rankings, which I think for him actually will be invaluable um, because he's not sort of rabbit in the headlights about it. He's actually coming in and gaining experience. I know there's not an audience, but playing on television may actually help some of the, the lower rank players. You mentioned Harvey Chandler, Ashley Carty, of course, was another mm. one who won a group. And these guys, I think, are going to take a lot from this tournament. Yeah, definitely. It's like we say, I'll just repeat what I said earlier. It was all about opportunity. It was about giving mm. players a chance to do something. And some of them took it very, very well. It'll be interesting to see now the guys who did well in the tournament, 
Will they go on and build on it? Some of the top players who didn't do so well, the likes of Selby and I suppose Sullivan and Trump might have expected to be involved till the end as well. I don't think it's going to be any great setback for them. They'll just be pleased to be back on the table. And of course, they've got uh, big events coming up now, hopefully with uh, the Tour Championship, although of course O'Sullivan isn't in that. Uh, and then obviously the World Championship, if as now seems likely it happens. So I don't think anyone really is coming away from that, that tournament feeling that they've lost anything from being part of it. And a lot of players have gained a lot in terms of prize money as much as anything else because they've not had a chance to earn any for three months. But also experience, playing on TV and, as you say, getting the chance to do that against opponents they could realistically hope to beat. Yeah, I was very proud of Snooker that, you know, that this went well. There's a long piece on the BBC Sport website about it. And obviously, you know, it's not one of their events. They don't have to write it. But it's actually a picture of me on there with Peter Lyons, actually, which um, which is actually password protected, I think, um, <laughs> or post-Watershed. But um, no, it, look, I've played a small role in it. But um, there's the, a lot of people there whose names, I guess, you know, regular fans wouldn't know who work so hard, you know, day and night to make it happen. And, you know, they proved that it could. And, and it's always, you know, there were people who were saying beforehand, you know, various things, various criticisms. But the fact is, you know, people who said it wouldn't work were wrong. People who said that snooker was coming back too soon were wrong. People who said it wouldn't be a success were wrong. It was a great success. We proved we could do it. And, of course, now it becomes the template moving forward. We don't know when everything's going to get back to, to normal, inverted commas. This is now the template. I think we'll see a lot more of that of that venue. Obviously, we're going back to the Tour Championship going back to the champion of champions, who knows the world qualifiers may even end up there. It's shown that, that it can work. Obviously, um, I think I think one of the reasons actually they had 64 players was to, you know, they could have had a small event. They could have had an eight-man event, ultra safe. One of the reasons they had 64 players is to show that actually we can operate for not the majority of the tour, but certainly lots and lots of players. So, so when it comes to, for example, qualifiers or these sort of flat draw tournaments in the future, they've shown that actually they can have a safe environment for lots of people. There are 116 coronavirus tests, all negative, which is fantastic, of course. And, you know, you get minor issues and minor problems behind the scenes at all tournaments, but there were no major issues at all. Um, almost miraculous in a way, but of course it comes down to all the planning that was done, all the work that was done that no one sees. And I also want to just say about the uh, the production team um, from a company called Loop Productions, who, mm. who, who they do the regular Championship League, and they worked all hours, you know, it was a, quite a small crew it had to be. And also the cameraman, Duncan, Darrell and Jim, you know, did pretty much every match, you know, on their feet as well all day long. So a great effort from them as well. You know, everyone just did their best and it was nice to be part of something that seemed to go down well. I mean, obviously, you know, you can't please everybody. I know that, but I think snooker fans in general enjoyed it. Like you said, 11 days of it as well. Incredible. Yeah. Basically all basically all day long from three o'clock every day. And yeah, I know obviously... Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, I mean, as you say, they could have done a smaller event, but isn't that what Matchroom and Barry Hearn yeah. and all the rest of the people associated with it are all about? It's all about ambition. Don't just do things the way they've always been done. Don't just do things the simple, straightforward way. Think big. Make something different happen. Make something big happen. This was the man who made the World Masters happen, an mm. extraordinary event in Birmingham in 1991 that I know you were at, actually. Yeah. So that's the way Matchroom operate, and that's why they've accomplished so much in so many sports over the years. And it's great to have them uh, running the sport and, showing that kind of ambition, which you kind of need right now to, to, to even get by at all. 
Yeah, I was at the. F- I went to the first day of the World Masters as a spectator. That's why I got Bob Chaperon's autograph, which I told in a previous podcast. Um, are you available in the back? Uh, in the back, not back issues. What do you call it? Back, back well, back, back podcasts. Episodes. Back episodes. That's it. Yeah, I am tired, as I said. Right. So the Championship League, it, it, it did its job, and I think everyone involved in it was very happy. I know ITV4 were very happy, and of course, you know, it's not long to wait now till they show their next lot of snooker, which is the Tour Championship second staging of that. It starts oddly enough on a Saturday. The good news this year, because last year it was a six-day tournament and people were saying, complaining, I think legitimately, that they couldn't watch the second table. Well, now there's one table a day. It makes sense in terms of the you know safety and whatever. So one table a day, one match a day for seven days. Um, and the one issue, of course, that was revealed yesterday is that Ding Jun, we can't play in it. He's not coming over from China. I think he could get here, but it would involve a lot of hassle, basically, on his part, uh, possibly even quarantine of, of some kind, not not 14 days. But, you know, um, it, it's obviously a lot more hassle when he's back in China. Yan Bingtao stayed in the UK, he's in Sheffield, so it's easier for him. It's a great shame for Ding. I think that, to be fair to World Snooker Tour, they couldn't have tried any harder. They've been working with the government to find solutions, but I just, I just think he feels that it's kind of just not worth his kind of while really putting himself through all that. I guess, you know, he, he, he hopefully will be over the World Championship. Non-British players are at a disadvantage. I've said this before, and that's something that I think this current situation has revealed. Um, but at the same time, the governing body have, I think, genuinely done all they could to get him in it. But it's going to start a week on Saturday. Um, and as I say, you know, a match a day, that's going to be... Again, great viewing. And, of course, it's in the same environment. So you you don't have the banks of seats empty in the background. You obviously notice when there's no applause for great shots or centuries. But I think the setup, actually, it was good. I, I kind of tuned out of that just and just focused on the snooker. Mm. And it, what, what it's going to do now, yeah, it's going to make it even more like the old world match play. And we've spoken about this in the mm. past. What a great event that was. And it's so similar to it now, actually, isn't it? It's players in on current form. Long matches all the way, and now there's going to be one table, which the match play usually was, even more so, and the fact that it's on ITV. So it was just such a high-quality event last year, and I'm absolutely delighted that we are getting to see it again this time around, and it can build on the momentum of its inaugural staging in 2019. And it's the only form guide we're really going to have for the World Championship, mm. because you know, by the time the Crucible comes around, which is now only six weeks away if everything goes to plan, this will have been the only tournament of any great significance at the highest level, really, that the players have played in for about four or five months. So it, it really is the form guide, and it will be a good form guide as well because of the fact that it's top players playing each other in long matches. So really can't wait for that to start now. Yeah, I guess the, the one change is the finals had to be reduced. It was uh, best of 25 uh, last year, and it's had to come down to best of 19. But I'd rather have a match a day and not miss anything. Um, sure. And reduce the final than, than you know, than try and contrive it so that because it's only been going one year. It's not like this is like so, sort of history's being, you know, dis- dismantled before our eyes. It's one, we've had it once this tournament um, and it was a great, great success. I guess the only problem with one match a day is if you do get a runaway, if someone wins. And with these players, it's, it's not that likely, but it could be that someone wins 9-3. Obviously, that means you only get four frames at night. But that's the problem with these length of matches. I think it's going to be, again... Uh, a good, really good week of snooker. And then, of course, after that, as you mentioned, it's then towards the World Championship. There's a bit of time before that. Uh, the qualifiers have not been announced exactly when they're going to be, but I would imagine, uh, from what I've heard, it's going to be essentially like it is normally the week before, so it's going to be finishing very soon before the Championship. We still don't quite know the format. There was 
there's discussions about reducing the length of matches. I've, I've been told there's now discussions about not doing that. So that's still to be worked out. It's going to come down to, um, again, safety and how many matches, how many people can be in a, in a building at the same time, essentially. We'll find out about more about that uh, in due course. Uh, but looking forward to the Tour Championship. In the meantime, though, we've had, we're talking about real tournaments. Let's, let's now move on to <laughs> a completely phony one because we had a great email last week from Dave Tyndall. Who and this is the chap who, during the lockdown to fill his time and, and to entertain his friends, has been recreating the 1982 World Championship. He sent us a great email last week, which was very hard to listen to, unfortunately because of the Wi-Fi. But hopefully, um, it was you, you got the gist of it. One thing he didn't tell us though was actually who won it. So we found out that it was Steve, Steve Davis against Kirk Stevens in the final. But he didn't tell us who won it. But thankfully, he's now contacted me. So I have the details. He's all, this is also the chap, by the way, who, who attempted to or wanted to buy a cardboard cutout of Alan Weeks, the first presenter oh, yeah. of, of Pop Black, which which just seemed – well, and that's, there's more news on that as well. So this is this is a sensational email. So, so Dave writes, okay, the final. Well, actually, I'll tell you first, the 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 um because the, you asked how long the matches were. Um, oh, whether yeah. It, yeah, well, okay. Well, it wasn't quite um, the full lot because, you know, he'd, he'd still be going now, wouldn't he? Um, so the round one matches were best of five, round two best of seven, quarterfinals best of nine, semis best of 11, final best of 17. So already traditionalists are turning against Dave here because he's, he's, cut, he's cut the length of the matches. Anyway, uh, he played the whole, so he played every match and we got down to a final between Steve Davis and Kirk Stevens, which fr- frankly, I would love to watch right now. If, that, if someone said to me, that's what, that's on telly, I would watch that now. Anyway, to the final. In echoes of Davis v. Knowles from the actual 1982 World Championship, Steve fell 5-1 down. But, Instead of art imitating real life, this time Steve rallied to send it to a 17th frame decider. So you see, even even in this, it's gone to the gone the distance. He yeah. said, and it gets better. He said it went to the colours with the tournament at his mercy. Kirk Mister Brown into the right middle pocket, and Steve cleared up to claim a dramatic 9-8 win. So Steve Davis, in fact, in in this version of history. Steve Davis won the 1982 World Championship, which completely skews everything, doesn't it? So, so hang on a minute. Was that, mm. Is it clear from the letter? Was that Brown match ball? He doesn't say that. Um, so but, I wonder, did, what, did he mm. win on the final black? <laughs> well, he says cleared up. So, yeah, I think you yeah. might be right. I think you might be right. So, in fact, yeah. Well, wow. I mean, this is, this is mind-blowing stuff. Um, and does this mean now he's a seven times world champion? You know, I mean, does this does this just change I'm gonna, everything? I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm fantasizing a little bit, you know. But, yeah. But I have to say, it sounds like the most tremendous spun was had because well, the fact that he can yeah. remember it in all this detail, I mean, it's just brilliant. There's no way he's going to stop there. Now he's got the bug for it. You can oh well, this guy's going to do this three well, well, times a year. No, well, we'll move on to that. We'll move on to that. Um, Davis, he sent me some pictures and a video. He's wearing his Davis and Kirk Stevens wigs in the pictures. Um, anyway, but, the, but this is where it gets really good. He says, a, a cardboard Alan Week seemed too pricey at £62. Well, so clearly there is one available, but it's 62 quid. Who on earth is selling it? I do not. I, I could not even begin to imagine. Where, where would you even go for that? Anyway, £62. It does seem a lot of money, Dave. He said a half-size one was cheaper. <laughs> but, but, I, but I wasn't prepared to compromise on realism. Well, fair enough. I'm, get, I'm getting the slight feeling that Dave might be Sorry, a lunatic. I have to say, <laughs> this guy has staged a fantasy tournament yeah. you know, from 1982 where Kirk Stevens is in the world final and Steve yeah. Davis 
has won the world title and he's saying he's not going to compromise on realism. Well, I think realism went out the window before it even started. Well, like I say, he may be a lunatic, but that's fine. We don't mind. Anyway, he says, in my head, he's wearing a purple suede jacket, but there were no pics on Google of him donning, donning such attire. In my head, he's always wearing like a dinner jacket and a week's. A yeah. proper sort of black dinner jacket like you wear to a fancy do. Um, if anyone has a cardboard cut out of Alan Weeks that they can send, Dave, let us know and I'll, I'll pass on these details. It seems unlikely, but you never know. Um, but here's the thing. OK, so he says, if any listeners can help with Project Alan, let me know. OK, but now he's clearly, like you say, he's not resting on his laurels, recreating right. Stuka history. He said, I've already reenacted the 1980 pop black. <laughs> we well, can do that very quickly. Yeah, with Dennis Taylor beating John Spencer in the final. So you see, there's this there's this alternative sort of version of Suga's history um, with all these all these titles being shared around that, that we don't know about. But uh, I, I get the feeling he uh, seems to me Dave is not going to end there. I think by the by the time you know we, we meet again maybe next year, the, the hot there'll be loads of tournaments, mercantile classics, all sorts of being replayed. And keep them coming, Dave, because we want to know, and particularly Alan Weeks thing, we want to we want to keep track of that because that's fantastic. I think what he'll do is he'll check in now to that hotel in Milton Keynes for the next week before the Tour Championship is on. And I mean, the table probably is going to be sitting there with nobody playing and he'll stage his own Championship League, isolate from himself. <laughs> Why not? How, 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 how that even works, I don't know. But yeah, I think it sounds like great fun. I, I'm, I'm all for all of this. Yeah. And he also, I'm just because he sent me another email. Um, he says here, I meant to add that, as Steve, I filmed myself numerous times trying to get a maximum, stopping only every 30 minutes to delete the numerous failed takes, which are eating up my iPhone storage. Driving myself increasingly mad, you don't say, Dave, it got, it got to the point where I literally couldn't pot a ball, so I gave up. Then, wouldn't you know, I woke up one morning, wolfed down some cornflakes, and achieved the maximum 107 on my third go. So we obviously only got 10 reds. Um However, as with John Spencer back in 1979, there were no cameras to capture it. <laughs> so anyway, that's, let us know, uh, Dave, how, how, the, how it all goes there and, and your next adventure in, in well, in madness, really. But uh, that, come on. That, 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 that story there, he's talking about how he had the cornflakes and then made the maximum. Now, you might have to help me out with this because wasn't there a story about Jack Carnham saying that he used <clears> to get <throat> up every morning and make a thousand break of billiards before breakfast? And then John Pullman piped up with, yeah, but you don't have breakfast till three or something like that. Essentially, I think it might have been a 500 break. But anyway, yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, story, the story is basically that, yeah. Um, now, now, of course, uh, but we haven't forgotten our friends in Turkey, by the way, because remember last week we had uh, Mesut uh, emailed us um, with a great story about uh, Mark Selby's oldest fan and all that and, and snooker in Turkey. And he, he said, thanks for reading it out. Um it's made my year now, so it doesn't matter if Selby wins at the Crucible. Um, and he just mentions, actually, and this is, I think this is another good thing for the Championship League. He says, my favourite new player that I've discovered is Joe O'Connor. Of course, he made the highest break, 143. Oh, yeah. And there were, pl- there were players like that, even Oliver Lyons, who, who, who didn't qualify. He made a terrific, I think, 136. Some of these players had the chance to just prove to people they could play the game. We're so often to sort of hearing about their, you know, results on table seven or something at the home nations. It was good to see people like that actually, you know, coming to the fore, even just briefly and just showing us uh, what they can do. So thanks, Mesut. Um, some other emails. So Scott McCarter writes, um, on the subject of longer matches, do you think WST have got the balance of long, short formats? Right. I would say yes, because you need a mix. Although I'm uncomfortable with the idea of best of sevens, I do know they produce great moments. The only thing I would actually change is restore the UK Championship 
to best of 17 pre-final. I think the, you're right, Scott, you know, the mix of uh, formats. I mean, Adam McManus made the point last night, you know, a few years ago, not that long ago, we were just used to best of nine tournaments, basically. That was the, that was the standard. Obviously, the world and the UK were slightly different. The Masters are best of 11. I think it's good to have different lengths. The true test is the longer matches, but the certain tournaments, you just couldn't have that. You couldn't play, you know, with all the players and you couldn't play matches over best of 17. I personally regret the UK being cut. I think it's now resembling, you know, a sort of regular tournament where it's supposed to be a blue chip event. But I think it's good. They're all different tests, aren't they? Different formats, different lengths, even the shootout. It's a different sort of test for different players, but it's the same game. Yeah, I mean, the best of seven, I think, is fine. I mean, I, I was saying that years ago that I thought we should maybe move towards that. I think what makes it okay now is the fact that we have more tournaments. If you go back to the days when there were, I don't know, six or seven ranking events, I think best of seven would have been a little too short because there was so much resting on each one. Mm. The fact is now, if you have a lot of tournaments, well, you know, you can't really complain too much because even if you do lose a best of seven and you feel you've not really got into the match, the fact is that through playing that format, they've managed to create a lot more events. So I think it's absolutely fine. I agree with you entirely. I think it's a real shame that the UK has gone the way it has. That was what made it a standout event was the fact that it was best of 17 all the way. Uh, and I'd love to see it go back to that. And, you know, the Tour Championship did so well last season. And I hope people sat up and took notice of that and thought, well, hang on a minute now. This is this shows that people do still have an appetite for the long matches and you don't have to be shortening everything. I mean, look at the cricket last summer. You... Um, England had that fantastic summer where obviously they won the World Cup, which is a one-day event. But didn't they also have a great summer in the tests as well? And yeah. that was hugely popular and got great television audiences. So have the mix, absolutely. At the moment, there's too much of a mix, I think, for shorter events. They're fine. Have those, by all means. But we need at least one more long-frame event. And that was, again, why it was great that we saw the Tour Championship. So at least that gave us two events now where multi-session matches are the staple. But... I'd love to see it back in the UK. Don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I think it would be a, a fantastic way of rejuvenating that event. And there's so much talk as, well, I know it's a world of pain for you, but the whole triple crown <laughs> thing as well. Well, if you want to make it a real standout event in the UK, that's how you do it. Because otherwise, at the moment, it's a wonderful event, but it's no different, really, to a lot of other events on the circuit. And it doesn't stand out from them. That's the very obvious way to restore it to its former glories. I had, a, I had a socially distanced conversation about the triple crown with three well-known players in uh, Milton Keynes, and they all agreed with me. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, the, the, the best of sevens, uh, the home nations, you know, people say they're a lottery. I don't agree at all. You look at the people who win them. Look at the home nations winners this season. Mark Selby won two. Yeah. Uh, Judd Trump won one and Sean Murphy won one. So it's basically, it's always going to be the same people. We do have about a couple of surprise winners, but there were still terrific players, but most of the home nations, this is, this is an absolute fact, have been won by top players like most tournaments are because they're the best players. Um, yeah, I, I, I like to see more longer frame matches. The problem, I guess, um, is just fitting everything in now. But uh, yeah, it'd be nice to see another one. And, and obviously the Tour Championship, as you say, is, 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 is all of that. Um, okay, so that's that one. Now, Paul Prescott, it's quite a long email, but quite an interesting one about refereeing. Um, I'm just going to read it out and then we'll discuss it. I'm a long-term listener to your podcast. I'm approaching 56, and I've been watching snooker since the 1970s by a pot black. That's the real pot black, by the way, not one that Dave, Dave Tyndall is recreating. I started playing around the age of 17 and played local amateur league Sorry, I'm just scrolling down. Local amateur league snooker for many years, highest break in 97. I attended the Worlds at the Crucible every year for about 20 years. Also used to attend the UK at Preston. 
I still play just for fun and watch most tournaments on TV. I wanted to raise the issue of how referees have changed the way they behave over the years and the effect that this has on the game. I'll start with a bold statement. People regularly debate whether Ronnie's fastest ever 147 will ever be beaten, i.e. can someone make one quicker. My simple answer is no, and it's down to the referees slowing down the fastest players due to the way that they position themselves during a game. In the past, referees would keep out of the way and ensure they were never in the direct line of sight of the player playing his shot. This would sometimes mean that the player would be able to see the referee in their peripheral vision. More recently, and I don't recall quite when things changed, probably 10, 12 years ago, referees always ensure that they're roughly behind the player playing his shot. This ensures the player never sees the referee whilst taking a shot. On the face of it, the second positioning technique is the better of the two. The problem is that the referee then takes longer to replace a potty colour ball and will regularly nearly collide with the players, then both move around the table. Watching modern referees constantly walking backwards and forwards and always insisting on positioning themselves roughly behind the player drives me round the bend, especially when watching the faster players ready to play the next shot but having to wait for the referee to replace a ball and then getting themselves back behind them. I do not see any problem with a referee simply getting out of a player's line of sight for the next shot. When playing a snooker shot, your peripheral vision becomes irrelevant as, as long as something isn't moving or making a noise, as you're so focused on the cue ball, object ball and pocket. Take an example of a player potting the black ball into a corner pocket and screwing back 12 to 18 inches for a red into the same pocket. The referee of yesteryear would likely be positioned underneath where the main camera would be for the classic overhead view looking down the table. They would take two steps towards the corner pocket, reach around and take the ball out of the pocket, take one step towards the centre of the top cushion, replace the back, the black, take two steps back to where they were originally. The modern day referee would be behind the player to start with, Having potted the black, the referee would have to walk around the table, taking probably five or six steps to do so. Reach around the pocket, take one step to the top cushion. By this time, the fastest players have chalked their cue and are ready to take their next shot. Replace the black and then continue to walk around the table back behind the player again. The situation is even worse when a player pots a blue and screws back for the next shot from the safe side of the table. Watching how Len Ganley positioned himself during Ronnie's record 147, constantly taking two steps reach step replace two steps back ronnie never had to pause waiting for the referee imagine a modern day referee walking around the table to replace the black and then walking around the back of ronnie on every other shot whilst they're red on the table there's no way he'll be able to do it as quick as he was i bet the faster players would much prefer the referee to just step out of line of sight keep still and get the balls back on the table quicker i'd be interested to hear your thoughts and why there must have been a directive for referees to position themselves the way they do now well, Paul has certainly thought that through. I think it's fair to say. He, he, yeah. he needs to give it some proper analysis. Really. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't look. I don't know if there's been any directive. I think what, what is certainly true is that referees, and certainly referees that are coming through, they look up to the established referees, and they they will attempt to sort of copy a bit like snooker players do, a copy the copy the people that are best at best at it. Um, I've got to be honest. I never noticed any of this, Paul, um, no. until until your email. One thing I have noticed though is um, I never remember um, this business where the pink doesn't go on its spot, you know, and it has to go close to its spot. I never remember it taking as long as uh, now as it like. I never remember it used to take as long yes, as it does now. It seems yeah. to take forever, and this is no. I'm not dissing any referee because it's a it's a great job and they do a great job, but. It, they, I don't know. Maybe they're more careful now because they think there's more scrutiny on them. I don't know, and there's more of them, so it's kind of a little bit competitive, maybe. Um, but that in particular seems to take forever, and it's true if you are a fluent player. And we saw this actually a bit last week. It couldn't be helped. All this business of walking to the corner to get the rest. If you're like a fluent player, it, it must uh, affect your fluency and your sort of concentration. Being in the moment of the break, having to break it, you can't just get the ref to hand you the rest or hand it back to them. You've got to do it yourself. Um, as for the referee's positioning, um, 
I don't know if it's a big deal, but it's clearly something that he's noticed. I've not heard any players comment on it. I think you just get attuned as a player to how they do it. And if this is how they do it now, then that, that then that's it. Uh, one ref I spoke to, actually, I, can't, I genuinely can't remember who it was, but it was one of the high-profile refs, said that he actually takes a completely different approach to refereeing Ronnie O'Sullivan <clears> than he does <throat> to any other player. And it's not in terms of giving him any preferential treatment or anything, but just the way O'Sullivan moves around the table, almost gliding around, and obviously the speed he plays at, you have to actually referee him differently. So it's interesting. If I could remember who that was, it might be well, good to, uh, to ask them about, about their take on it, that it has to be done differently. My view is that I don't think it would matter how you refereed it or who was refereeing. I don't think you ever could make a faster maximum. Than, uh, I think it would be borderline impossible. Maybe Drago, in his peak, could possibly, if he'd made a 147, have made it a bit faster. But I, I don't think, I mean, even Tep Chayon knew, I don't think he could make one faster than that. It would be more or less unthinkable. I agree with you that thing, actually. I've noticed that too about the respotting of the pink. And I remember the world final, I think it was 2012, that Michaela Tab was doing. And there was this situation where the, the pink couldn't go on any, of its, on any of the spots. But where it had to go was basically there was a gap right in the middle of the reds. Mm. The only way she could get the pink in there was by moving another red out and marking that. And then, yeah. of course, she's only got one ball marker and she's having to mark about three or four balls. Now, this went on for about four or five minutes. Now, you know what it's like in that crucible arena. So every eye is staring down on you. It's completely silent. There are millions of people watching on television. I remember thinking at the time, even the guys in the final frame in 85 and 02 and 94 can't possibly have felt the amount of pressure there was on that. Mm. But she did manage to get it right and get the pink back in its spot. But yeah, that's just a little thing. I, I agree with you. I've noticed that too. It's, it seems to take forever now to get it right. The thing with refs is it's one of those jobs, probably more than any other job I can think of, that is much, much harder than it looks. Because, you know, you look at it, you just think it's dead easy. Most matches, there aren't that many controversies or decisions to be made. It's all fairly straightforward. You're getting the balls back on their spots and all that, setting them up at the next frame and calling out the scores. There's so much more to it than that and keeping your concentration and all the rest. I think it's a really, really difficult job and there are only a handful of them who I think really, really excel at it. Uh, I mean, you you do need a lot of referees. It must be 30, 40 referees, maybe even 50 who officiate on the circuit in the course of a season. I think you're doing well if you have you know even six or seven of them being really, really good at it. And I think that's basically what we've got. <coughs> it really is a very difficult thing to get right. Yeah, I think the ref you you mentioned at the start may have been Paul Collier, and the reason I say that is because he was on the podcast. Um, and I, I I did a match at the Champion of Champions where Ronnie was playing, and he Paul was refereeing, and I, Ronnie was making a century or certainly a big break, and I was I sort of was half watching Paul, and I actually went back afterwards and watched it on YouTube, and I just watched Paul and how he positioned himself. And that, if you're going to show any budding referee how to position yourself, refereeing a player like Ronnie, who's naturally quick and you don't interrupt his flow, you just you would watch that because he was absolutely superb. And in a way, it's funny in a way, because in a way, the best referees you don't notice until until you notice them, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. What what you need is, I mean, I wrote a piece on the WST website a couple of months ago about sort of referees of the past and so on. And what I think what anyone, any player needs in a referee, someone with authority, someone who, you know, is in charge of the match, is confident to be in charge of the match, someone who you respect. Now, in the old days, you had the John Streets, the John Williams, the Len Ganleys, Alan Chamberlain, these people who were very much John Smythe, very much in charge. You know, you knew that they were solid people 
who, you know, were going to run the match properly. And that has certainly continued. You know, you look at the top level now, obviously, Paul, people like Brendan Moore and uh, Olivia Martil and the Amber House is, of course, still going strong and, and quite a few others as well. Um, and, and that's what you want. You want referees who can do the job. I mean, it seems an obvious thing to say, but you want to have confidence in them as a player. Of course, you don't want them, you know, uh, putting you off. But just do the job and let let the player do the job. Every player goes about their game differently, but they want the referee to be in control as well. Rob Spencer who did the final last night. Superb, I think. Um, it, it, it's funny, actually, you mentioned Rob, because I was just going to make the, the, the point, and I'm sure you've noticed it as well. Isn't it funny how many snooker referees come from a police background? Because, uh, <laughs> yes. Rob is one. Uh, Irene Williams. Leo as yeah. well. Leo Scullion's from a yeah. police background. And there have been a few others over the years. No coincidence, that. No, very, very true, yeah. Okay, well, anyone with any uh, thoughts on the um, referees, uh, let us know, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But another email, which I'm going to deal with at a later date from Chris Robinson. Chris has come up with various subjects that he wants to discuss. I'll just read one thing, because we're going to come on in a minute to Book of the Week, uh, or you are, anyway. Um, He said, Grady Snooker book, shout out to Cliff Thorburn's autobiography, where he sprays a dog with mace to see if it works. Uh, that's not that's not the whole book, but anyway, uh, and he, he says probably frowned upon now. I would think so, yeah. And he also says Stephen Hendry's book he thought was very honest as well. He's come up with some other ideas, which Chris we will come back to at a later date. Um, but we're going to wrap up shortly. Um, yeah, I didn't, I haven't come up with a book of the week. So, uh, you, but you, as we know, are surrounded by snooker books, it seems. So you can choose one for us. Yeah, well, in my office here, I have all, all sorts of books. Actually, all the walls are basically basically adorned with books of all all sorts, including. Every news of the world slash nationwide football annual back to 1984. <laughs> it takes wow. up a huge chunk of the room. No, but this one, I actually thought of it. It will be worth a mention at some stage. I don't know if you've read it. I think you said you did. Stuart Pentman, as mm. sometimes seen on TV. Yeah. Uh, Stuart um, was, you know, kind of one of your classic sort of journeyman pros. Very good player on his day, but just didn't have enough days. Was a ranking tournament semi-finalist at one stage in the China Open. Played at the Crucible, of course. And... It's basically the story of, I mean, all, all the books really of, of snooker players, they're all top players. Nearly all of them are world champions. And the ones who aren't world champions who've written autobiographies are guys who are very familiar uh, to the general public. John Virgo, Willie Thorne, Jimmy Wise is the most obvious one, I suppose. But this is the only one certainly that I know of about a player a long way down the rankings and sort of battling against the odds to try and get a few results here and there, knowing he's never really going to be a top player. And it's a very good insight, actually, into to what it's all like. He's written at the back here. I'll just read something about the, um, the back page. It says, of course, most players like to win a world title or two before venturing into print. But here, Stuart casts aside such conventions in his account of the 2009-10 season, written from the vantage point of 35th place in the world rankings. What is it like to take on Ronnie O'Sullivan in front of a full house in China? What is it like to take on Dave Harold in front of a couple of pensioners in North Wales? <laughs> what exactly goes through a professional's mind when he's at the table or in his chair? Why isn't being the owner of a snooker club the path to untold riches? Because that's actually part of it as well. He, he's actually the proprietor of the snooker club. And there's some great anecdotes in there about just trying to make it work and trying to make a success of it and some of the characters who come into his club. And I think what makes it all work is... He doesn't try to make out, oh, it's all a terrible struggle and I've been hard done by that I'm not a top player. He comes across as someone who really doesn't take himself too seriously at all. He just enjoys the fact that he's getting the experience of being a professional sportsman, even though he knows he's never going to be at the highest level. The thing is, of course, it was written 
just before, literally the season before the number of tournaments started to explode. I think at that time there were maybe only about seven ranking events or whatever. And he talks about to supplement his earnings, he goes out and plays in this circuit out in Thailand that I don't think I've, I've certainly ever heard very much about. Just a really good read, nice and easy to uh, to work your way through. And I think anyone who's interested in what it's like to be a lower ranked player, and they're all very capable players even at that level. I think it's, uh, it's a really good one. Stuart Petman, uh, in collaboration with Graham Kay, as sometimes seen on TV. It might be hard to get hold of now. I don't know if it was ever even sold in shops. I know it was being sold through the magazine for a while, and maybe you could get it online somewhere. But if you can't get hold of it, it's certainly worth a read. Yeah, it's, it, it, I suppose in a way he's an unlikely person to have a book about him, but it, it just proves that, you know, that all these stories that, you know, from the sort of lower reaches, if you like, of the circuit, they, they are interesting because it's very kind of unglamorous. Um, and and, and, and it's, it's a very funny book as well, actually. Um, yeah. I, 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 I remember really enjoying it. Stuart was a very good player, actually, but I think, you know, he's one of these players who's better than most people who've ever played snooker, but not quite at the level where he was going to be winning tournaments. And I think he, he actually accepted that and, and he's still involved, you know, in, in other ways with the sport. So yeah, it's good, good pick. Um, it it, it yeah. may well be, it may very possibly be the only snooker book that's ever been read in Macedonia because <laughs> that's, that's where I was when I read it, when I was covering the Ireland team uh, back in the day, I used to take it to all kinds of corners of Europe. So we had a European championship qualifier in 2011 in Skopje, the capital of Macedonia. And I brought the book with me and, and read it there. So I'm sure someone will probably mail in and tell us there's a thriving snooker scene in Macedonia. But uh, if not, then it may well be the only snooker book ever to have been read in that country. Or North well, Macedonia you, as it is now, of course. Yes. Well, if you are in, in, in Macedonia, let us know. Um, I thought next week, and if you want anyone to email us about this, we could we we did a thing about you know the greatest players and all that. I thought it'd be interesting to talk about non-players who've made a significant contribution to snooker. Now, there's obvious people, Neville Chamberlain, for example, who invented snooker, we won, someone like Barry Hearn. But maybe what I'm talking about are sort of unsung heroes in many ways. So there'll be people who have helped, for example, players in their younger days, uh, coaches or club owners, referees we already mentioned, people, basically people who are not snooker players, but have made a significant contribution to snooker. So you and I will talk about that. But if any listeners got ideas of people who they've known over the years. Maybe a suggestion uh, could, could, mm. could be maybe uh, people who managed to keep a snooker podcast going every week during a lockdown. I don't know if, it, if anyone has ever done that over the years. Maybe uh, <laughs> could nominate those two. Well, yeah, well, maybe, yes. But I, I was thinking more. I was, I was thinking more of sort of names that maybe even we haven't heard of, you know. Something less um, self-serving, maybe. Possi- possibly, yes. Yeah, yes, uh, yes. I mean, because there's nothing self-serving about doing the podcast in the first place, is it? Um, so, yeah, but what are, any ideas, people who you've come across, I mean, I've got some myself who I'll talk about next week, but essentially people who have also served the game but are not players. I think that'd be interesting topic of conversation. People you may have met, met at tournaments or just have been important, you know, in, in your sort of snooker life, as it were. So you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We will discuss that and much more la- uh, next week. I did say this would be short, but actually hasn't been really, but that's fine. It's nice to, uh, it's nice to be back home, actually. Um, although, uh, you know, I'm waiting for someone to knock on the door and leave my lunch outside because that's what, what's happened for the last two weeks. I'm going to have to make it myself, uh, but that's fine. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will return next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.